Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, true crime fans. I'm Katie Accardo, and this is True Crime in the 50, a podcast where I take a look at the craziest, most disturbing, and realest crimes from each of the 50 states. We'll talk about the homicides, serial killers, disappearances, and frauds that rocked each and every state across this country. And two years later, we are back to the very first state, Alabama. Thank you to all of you who have been around since that first episode two years ago, and welcome to all of you new listeners. I'm excited to be going through all 50 states again. We'll have some more fun facts from the states, and please forgive me if I retell some of them, but it's hard for me to remember which ones I mentioned from two years ago. So here are some fun facts about the great state of Alabama. Alabama is the only state with all major natural resources needed to make iron and steel. Hence, it is the largest supplier of cast iron and steel pipe products. The pecan is Alabama's official nut. I guess states have official nuts. The musical singing group Alabama has a fan club and museum in Fort Payne. I actually saw Alabama in concert almost 30 years ago now. They were actually pretty good. The word Alabama means tribal town in the Creek Indian language. The United States Chemical Corps Museum in Fort McClellan contains over 4,000 chemical warfare artifacts. Alabama has the most snails of any state, and windshield wipers were invented there. And finally, the first 911 call was made in Haleyville, Alabama, by Senator Rankin Fight on February 16, 1968. The first case from Alabama was the Twins Murder for Hire case. Go back and check it out if you haven't yet. And today, our second case from the great state of Alabama 
concerns the senseless murders of two teenage girls late one summer night in 1999. Their case went unsolved for 20 years until finally, unfortunately, they caught the guy in 2019. Let's hear about the murders of Tracy Hollett and J.B. Beasley. Tracy Hollett and J.B. Beasley were both 17 years old at the time of their deaths and were best friends who went to Northview High School in Dothan, Alabama. Dothan is Alabama's eighth largest city in the very southeast part of the state. It is only 16 miles north of the Florida state line and 20 miles west of the Georgia state line. Tracy was a majorette and wanted to be a doctor and a missionary when she grew up. JB wanted to be a dancer when she grew up, and both girls competed in local beauty pageants. On the evening of July 31st, 1999, which was JB's 17th birthday, the girls had plans to go out together to attend a party in a field that was being held in JB's honor in Ozark, Alabama. During that time, JB was actually in foster care and was living with her dance instructor because there had been some issues with her mother and alleged physical abuse, I believe, on both ends. At around 9 p.m., Tracy drove to the local nursing home where her mother, Carol Roberts, worked to ask her if she could go to JB's birthday party and then stay the night at her house. The next day, the girls had plans to go to church together. Tracy's mom told her she could go, so Tracy drove next to the J.C. Penney, where J.B. was finishing up her work shift. She arrived at J.C. Penney in the Wiregrass Commons Mall in Doveman around 9.20. Then the girls drove back to J.B.'s house so she could change clothes. It was said by some of J.B.'s co-workers that neither girl really wanted to go out, that they were both kind of tired that night, but they felt like they needed to because the party was kind of being thrown for J.B.'s birthday. At 10.05 p.m., they set out for the party, but at 10.30 p.m., were seen at a BP gas station near routes 173 and 431 in Headland. The girls made a call from the payphone there, allegedly to some friends, to either ask for directions to the party or to tell the friends that they probably weren't going to make it. You see, the girls had become very lost. After driving around for another hour, I mean, these girls must have really been lost, they pulled over at another gas station and convenience store that had been closed for 30 minutes. Again, they used a payphone to call Carol Roberts, Tracy's mother, to ask her if they could stay out past curfew as their curfew was 11.30. And at the time, it was already 11.30. Tracy told her mom that the girls had gotten lost trying to go to the party, but that they were giving up and going back to JB's house. Carol Roberts said that she told her daughter that that was fine and that Tracy had seemed in a good mood, so her mom went to bed after the call. The two girls then asked a woman named Marilyn Merritt, who was at the gas station with her daughter, for directions back to 231, 
which was the road that would take them back to JB's house. The woman told them how to find 231, and then they left. At 5 a.m. the next morning, August 1st, 1999, Carol Roberts woke up to get ready for work and noticed that Tracy and JB were not at home. They had never made it back. Tracy's stepfather set out for Ozark to see if he could find the girls. Meanwhile, Carol Roberts called hospitals and jails looking for them, and at 8 a.m., she called the police to report them missing. The police did not miss a beat on this one, which is good, and headed out to look for the girls in JB's 1994 Mazda 929. A police officer found it not too long after that, parked on Herring Avenue, a dark and narrow street used as a shortcut to get through town less than one mile from the second convenience store where Tracy used the payphone to call her mom. The car was facing north, though, so if the girls had come directly from the convenience store, they would have made a U-turn to park it. The car was described as being muddy as well, and the witness who had seen them, Marilyn Merritt, said that when she saw the girls and their car, that it looked very clean. Also, the car was almost out of gas, but the tank had been filled up just the day before. So for the car to be almost out of gas, that would have taken about eight hours of driving, and the girls certainly had not done that. The Dothan police were sent to check out the car, and when they arrived, found that the driver's side window was rolled down and JB's license is on the dashboard. It looked almost as if the car was pulled over by the cops, what with the window being rolled down and JB's license out. The keys to the car were missing. JB's keychain had a plastic fob on it with white letters that spelled out hard to get. And to this day, her keys and keychain have never been found. Another thing that seemed to have been taken by someone was a Boston Red Sox baseball cap that friends and family said that JB always kept in her car. The baseball cap was nowhere to be found when police arrived at the vehicle. But when the Dothan police arrived, someone thought to release the trunk latch, and that is where they found both girls. Each girl had been shot in the head once. Tracy had been shot in the temple and was further back in the trunk. JB had been shot through the cheek and was closer to the front. Neither girl had drugs or alcohol in her system, and Tracy's arms had scratches and abrasions on them. At first, it looked as if neither girl had been sexually abused because both were fully clothed, but JB was found to have been sexually abused and had semen on her bra, panties, and skin. Because of the heat of the day, then on August 1st, it was hard to determine when the girls had died, but investigators believed that it was sometime between midnight and 3 a.m. Witnesses driving along the road late at night claimed to have seen the car parked there unmoving at 3 a.m., so they must have been shot and left before then. Investigators believe the girls were shot elsewhere, and then the car was driven to that location and left. 
Investigators also claimed that both girls were wet and muddy from the knees down as if they had been in or made to be submerged in water up to their knees. Tracy's New Balance sneakers were wet and muddy. There was a swampy marsh and a pond and stream about half a mile away from where the girls were found in the parked car. Also nearby to where the car was found were three baseball fields, an ice factory, and a hospital with a very large parking lot. A woman did come forward in March of the next year to say that she had heard screams and gunshots in the early morning hours in a nearby field and a barn close to where she lived. The field and barn were secluded from Route 231, and there was a swampy pond close by. Investigators decided that that was most likely the scene of the crime, that the girls had been shot there in the early morning hours, their bodies put into the trunk of the car, and then the car was driven and subsequently abandoned. But that was just about all the information police had to go on. On August 18th, the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit was called to work on a profile of the killer. On August 31st, a picture of a light-colored foreign-made truck caught on surveillance camera at the gas pumps at the Big Little Convenience Store was released. The Big Little Convenience Store and gas station was the place where the girls stopped to make the second phone call at 11.30 p.m. On September 1st, police found the owner of that vehicle, and his name was Johnny William Barentine. Barentine was arrested that same day, but Johnny Barentine did not kill Tracy Hollett and J.B. Beasley. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Baron Time was a shy and quiet 28-year-old man with mental disabilities. He had only completed the eighth grade. He had a wife named Mary and a two-year-old boy named Alan. He worked at Daniel's Auto Repair Shop and lived a quarter mile from the Big Little Convenience Store. He was also known to stretch the truth and lie a lot. On that night, July 31st, Baron Time had gone out to the Big Little to buy milk and had left home at around 11.30 p.m. He was gone for 90 minutes, though, and told his wife and some friends that he had been gone for so long because he had seen a black truck speeding on Herring Avenue, and that truck had hit his car. Then the truck had just sped away. When he told friends that that had happened at the exact same time when J.B. and Tracy were most likely killed, friends encouraged him to go to the police with what he knew. They said that the black truck could have had something to do with the girls' murders. 
So Johnny did. But before he went to the police, he did a little investigating of his own at the crime scene. That is always a smart move. He did that because he wanted to collect the reward money that was being offered for any information about the girls' murders. At the time, the reward money was up to about $45,000. Johnny's story changed quite a bit after he was arrested by the police, and that is why he looked so suspicious. Actually, Johnny's story changed five times, to be exact. One of his stories was that on the night of the crime, before going to the store to get milk, he picked up a stranger by the side of the road. The man made him drive to Big Little, where he spoke with J.B. and Tracy. The strange man then got into J.B.'s car with the girls and told Johnny to follow them in his car. Johnny did, and the man took them to Heritage Avenue and then made the girls get out of the car and shot them while Johnny watched. Okay, so right, cool story, but none of that happened. The police found out that Johnny was lying pretty quickly there because, well, that's ridiculous, and what a stupid story. To be like, oh yeah, by the way, this is what actually happened. I randomly picked up some strange dude by the side of the road at 11.30 at night while I was heading to the store half a mile away and said, dude got to the gas station, talked to two chicks for a minute, and then shot them by the side of the road for no reason. While he had a witness watch him do all of this. Yeah, that's a no. Like, come on, man. There was also a handprint on the trunk of the car, and the police figured it belonged to the killer, and so they tried Johnny's DNA against it, but it was no match. A grand jury failed to indict Johnny Barentime, and so he was set free. Unfortunately, police still did not have their killer, and Johnny Barentime was simply just a mentally disabled man who changed his story about what he had seen that night in order to try to collect reward money. He may have been an idiot, but he was no killer. In 2000. 15, something weird happened. A 53-year-old auxiliary officer, which is like someone who is like a crossing guard in a town, I think. I didn't know what that was and had to look it up. Uh, But anyway, named Rena Crum, heard that a police officer who was in the area on the night of the murders got really drunk and confessed to killing the girls. She found out this information on a blog written by a man named John Carroll who claimed that J.B. and Tracy had been killed by police officers because the girls were in possession of tapes implicating local cops in the drug trade. Got all that? Now, this all sounds pretty freaking weird to me, 
and made up because, well, it was, but the auxiliary officer slash crossing guard Rena Crum got all excited about this blog. Turned out, Rena Crum was also a blogger, and so she took to her blog and accused a local police officer of killing the girls and then accused the whole Dothan police force of covering it all up for one of their own. None of this was true, and none of this was actually the case. Way to go, Rena Crum. Way to accuse someone of murder on your little blog. A defamation lawsuit, duh, was brought against Rena, but was dropped after Ms. Crum filed for bankruptcy. She was also convicted of one misdemeanor act of harassing one of J.B. Beasley's sisters. So this woman was clearly insane. Finally, after being questioned and after questioning the cop in question that she fingered, Rena Crum admitted to lying. She did this by saying, and I quote, I lied. So that was the end of all of that. But the case was cold, very, very cold, until March of 2019, 20 years later, when investigators decided to use the DNA that they had found from the palm print on the trunk and from a vaginal swab taken from JB and run it through a public genealogy database like what they did to catch the Golden State Killer and, oh, I don't know, probably every killer going forward for all of time. Isn't that so cool how they can do that nowadays? It's like, I often think to myself, why, in this day and age especially, would anyone kill anyone? Because they are going to be caught because all of this badass genealogy stuff. So just like, don't kill people, people. It's like impossible to get away with murder nowadays. So they went to the public genealogy database and lo and behold, they found a match. The DNA matched that of Coley McCraney, a former military man, truck driver, and preacher at the Spirit and Truth Life Ministries Church, who would have been 26 years old at the time of the murders and was then 48. He had six kids and 19 grandchildren. McCraney was a local man, a 1992 graduate of Carroll High School. He had been on the track team and was the vice president of the high school library club. What is a library club, I wonder? Regardless, this man had not been on the police's radar 20 years before whatsoever. His ex-wife filed a complaint with the Air Force in 1994, saying that he had assaulted her. He also had a few other criminal allegations against him while he served in the military and still owned the same kind of gun that had been used to kill both Tracy and JB. He had obtained the gun illegally. But this is interesting. In 1998, Coley was sued by a woman 
for a paternity case, and he was supposed to submit his DNA for said case on July 30th, 1999, the day before the murders. Coley failed to show up for his DNA test, and he also failed to appear in court for the case. At the time of the murders, McCraney lived on Lysenby Drive, one mile from the crime scene. When the police went to pick up McCraney for questioning, he told them that he lived elsewhere with his mother when he actually had lived in that house so close to the crime scene that whole time. Two decades. That doesn't look suspicious at all, dude. Lying about where you live to the cops. Yeah, that's completely normal. Coley McCraney was arrested soon after he was questioned back in 2019. Coley McCraney did not admit to killing either girl or to raping J.B. Beasley. He has offered no explanation as to why he did it, such as if it was some kind of carjacking gone wrong, or if he just picked a night to rape and kill two completely innocent girls. Either way, what a horrible excuse for a human, this guy. A preliminary hearing was held in August, and the courtroom in Dothan was absolutely packed, but the trial was continued for lack of available jurors. McCraney's new trial is set for April 17th of this year, 2023. Even with all of the indisputable DNA evidence against him, to this day, Coley McCraney has never admitted to the murders and maintains his innocence. True Crime in the 50 podcast is researched, written, and produced by me. Katie Accardo. Sound mixing and editing by me. Please check out our website, truecrimeinthe50podcast.com, or shoot us an email at truecrimeinthe50podcast at gmail.com. And that's 5-0, the number. If you like the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Also, if you have any true crime friend fans, spread the word. If you are interested in learning more about this case, check out Three Men and a Mystery podcast. This doubles as source material for this episode and can be found in the show notes. Tune in in two weeks on Monday, January 16th for another crazy true crime episode from the great state of Alaska. Thank you so much for listening.